0: seconds flat. Give it up. Look at Bill! Look at Bill! Look at Bill! Look the the 10,000 meters.
1: Stand by for the kick of Dave Waddle. If he's got it, he could make it. I think he did it! Dave Waddle wants to go in medal.
0: This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's
1: been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He's been broken
0: Happy New Year and welcome to Mile 138 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast, presented by Columbus Running Company and ColumbusRunning.com. Phil, it is good to be back with you. How was Christmas? It was good.
1: We uh, had a little bit of setback going in with COVID running through the household, but recovered quickly enough for Santa to get here safely, and it was fine. My little one got the coolest toy, though. Her... uh my dad got her a Corvette. Now it's oh. size for a four-year-old, but it's got a little bit of rumble to it, and it will fly. So we've been out tearing up and down the driveway with that. That thing is cool.
0: That is neat. But I do get great joy out of one-upping a four-year-old. I had a better gift, Phil. Oh. I'm I'm going to put this as one of my all-time like top three gifts that I've ever gotten for Christmas. Are you familiar? with the Danish dessert treat, the Kringle. Ooh, uh uh-huh. Okay, so my mother, what a sweetheart. She's an angel. She is an angel, that's right. She got me one of the most ridiculous but best gifts I've ever gotten. Okay. Uh, I am now enrolled in some bakery in Racine, Wisconsin. We're, we are huge in Wisconsin, by the way. So I know, I'm sure they're probably listening while they bake for us right now. <laughs> she enrolled me in their Kringle of the Month Club.
1: Oh, man.
0: It's going to totally derail training. You're going to have to
1: up your mileage to handle that.
0: Yeah, there's there's no question. I was able to pick my own flavors. I went heavy on the cherry. Uh, the apple, the cinnamon. I, I can't wait. The first one arrived yesterday. It's almost gone already. It's oh a goodness. strawberry and cream cheese flavor. It is fantastic. So we hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas and we look forward to a great 2023. Last we spoke, Phil, the wind chill was 30 something below zero here today. It was in the mid 60s for my <laughs> run. So we've had a nearly 100 degree swing. I am sure I'll be sick by the time we get this episode published.
1: Well, you gave some great advice last episode about how to dress appropriately for different weather conditions. I imagine your theories have been tested over the past week and a half or so.
0: I was in like four layers, wool, base layers, the whole thing. Today I'm out there in short shorts and a cotton t-shirt just jogging around like it's spring break. It was fantastic. (laughs) So as we move to 2023, uh, we're going to pull back to episodes 114 and 115 that we did last autumn. In those episodes, we took a deep dive into uh, the seminal research publication, The Training Characteristics of World-Class Distance Runners, An Integration of Scientific Literature and Results-Proven Practice. In that two-part series that we did, we went through the study and looked at the types of training the athletes did, how much of the training, the intensities, what those look like compared to what average athletes are doing and how we could learn from that training. Now, after examining several other studies, uh, including from other endurance sports like cross-country skiing, more broadly in triathlon, and and those studies do have the limitation of the impact force being different Mm -hmm. that running includes, but also then listening to a number of interviews as well with those authors from the original publication that we addressed. I've created a list of five key distance running training applications from the training of elite athletes. So this is part three of that series that we started earlier in the fall, but also importantly builds on our discussion last week, Phil, about what is applicable from the best in the world and what in their training is more so a product of survivorship bias, as Phil noted, the things elites can do in part because they live the lives of professional athletes and also in part because they are extreme genetic outliers, Bill, you are coming into this blind. I said to you, I have a topic I want to record on. Let's make it happen. I look forward to your questions, your comments, maybe some disagreement, friendly disagreement. As always. And perhaps uh, maybe even some witty banter. No promises. Are you ready, big boy?
1: That's been my job on this show the whole time. You do the homework. I come in blind and, and just try to keep you reined in.
0: That is true. You do a great job I've of reining me in. For, for
1: many, many episodes.
0: I'm ready. I hope in 2023, Phil, you actually do something for this program. <laughs> <laughs> all right, no, you're the best. Well, not the best, I'm, but you—you you, you <laughs> you got a—you got a face for podcasting. That's right. You you are on a short list of all time great co hosts on this show with Cosmo and Benji. I'm at least top five. Yes, you are absolutely, buddy. <laughs> all right. Let's roll into this. Okay, number one. On my first one, this actually takes a direct quote from one of the authors uh, from that publication we went into in the fall. We're going to take that quote and flesh it out a bit more here. So Oyvind Sandbach refers to elite training. And by that, I mean training exceptionally well at any level, not just what pros do. He refers to it as "quote chess." End quote. I love this analogy of training as playing chess.
1: You're gonna to have to flesh that out because I only understand checkers.
0: You're a checkers guy, and I'm playing chess, and it's why I'm always several moves ahead of you. It's also well, why- let's, let's bring back the second flash showdown of who oh, dominated
1: God. that performance. But you anyway, can, continue.
0: You can only milk that for so many episodes, Phil. <laughs> The the quote suggests we should always be looking multiple moves ahead that we are willing to perhaps sacrifice a pawn now to take a queen later that we strategically build each day, not just to optimize that day, but to optimize the entirety of our training. And that's how elite training is chess. We should all be playing chess with our training, looking multiple moves ahead. See the bigger picture, train at the level where you are with an eye toward where you want to be, knowing we can't skip moves.
1: That's a good way to put it. And I think your statement of Understanding where you currently are is important out of that because I don't want our listeners to get to get confused thinking that our goal is whatever X performance in a race four months away. And to do that, we need to be doing these workouts and this Mm -hmm. mileage and what have you when your current fitness level indicates you may not quite be at that level. But number one, I think it's important to understand train for where you are currently Mm -hmm. but also understand how everything else you do during the day goes into your training response but then also understanding what else you need to be doing to to make that next step forward is that a fair summary
0: yeah that's good And, and as you said that i started to think how chess is a high level intellectual game and i i don't want to use the analogy in a way that it gets spun into overthinking training and and trying to be almost too smart for our own good. No, it's just about plotting what you do in the context of being best prepared for what's coming. Mm -hmm. Let's take a few examples. Easy days. They might feel easy, but are they being done at an effort level that allows you to be best prepared for the coming session that's more challenging. You, you, you sit it in a context. And then once you get to that session, is it positioned in a context that allows you to do the next session after it or the next long run after it? And so that each day is part of a bigger whole. Each move on the chessboard is one where we're looking at everything else that's happening on the board, not just that single move. We can get greedy and take pieces from our opponent for the short term, but we might get checked in the long term by making those moves. So we're never too invested in any single effort. It's not just about, I have to run this one long run really well. That's not what's going to make you great. It's seeing the entirety of the board. Yep. That's perfect. Okay. Number two. We're going to simplify. We'll go away from chess. Although I I just, I loved the quote and and I think it's brilliant. Uh, Number two, building on that first point, it seems we are better over time by reducing the number of the hardest sessions we do for the trade-off of more quality and consistency over time we've discussed this before in the context of I'd rather hit a bunch of singles and doubles rather than just one home run. Yeah. Or in a
1: different context, I'd rather have, you know, a whole bunch of B workouts week after week after week, than park, but then the next several weeks have poor workouts.
0: Right. And so to, to use the analogy you're going with, adding up a bunch of 80% scores in a class with an occasional 90 and an occasional 75 averages to a much better overall grade than if you get three perfect scores and fail every other assignment for the entirety of the semester, right? Just because you crushed three big ones. Now let's take it to training. We might call this the Kipchoge Principle. Efforts that are under control. He talks repeatedly about 80% efforts in his training. He
1: never goes all out. Yeah. And he's
0: built those for years, right? So you've heard the idea of train, not strain. It's about winning the chess match, not just making a flashy first move. And with each passing year, I'm more convinced that those hardest sessions carry so much risk whether that's injury or the time needed to recover, et cetera, for a short-term reward, that instead if we pull back and do these a little less often, we're better for the long-term. And Plus, in the long-term, we're reducing that risk, but I don't think we're reducing the potential reward. It's just the reward might take a little longer to get to. Yeah. When you add up hundreds of quality, high-end aerobic sessions over time and maybe sprinkle in a bit of faster stuff, you have a shot at reaching that highest potential and seeing dramatic growth over time.
1: Well, and at the end of the day, I suspect you'll still get there faster because you'll be consistently putting in that quality work rather than having to take time off here and there because you've overdone it and need to recover more than you otherwise
0: would fair point Phil I think that's a good addition you you might right away be able to absorb a bunch of those hard sessions and have a big jump but you're right it is going to lead to that breakdown that you may end up for that for the biggest goals getting there quicker even than if you took the big risk
1: yeah
0: we still have to work hard I don't misunderstand what we're saying but there's certain things that I would dial back on a little bit, maybe as opposed to what I believed five or 10 years ago. And most of the elites are, are dialing that back as well. I'm going to come to a different study shortly that will buttress this with one of my later points. But even professionals like Kipchoge is a marathoner, but professionals on the track, many of them Eliminate groups where we know certain athletes or coaches or agents might have history with performance-enhancing drugs. Eliminate those, and let's just not include them, because that was one of the great things about the original study. They eliminated a lot of people Mm -hmm. who are very elite because there were questions about connections uh, to doping. We could still go to track athletes rather than marathoners and see that they're dialing back on some of that risk, too maybe even more often than the recreational runner does. The recreational runner wants to just crush these big sessions. And a lot of the best of the best are, they're doing some hard sessions, but not with the frequency we might imagine. That That's a theme we see in, in the research. So I guess the question then is, what would I dial back on? Or maybe I'll ask that to you first, Phil, anything that comes to mind that you would say, maybe we need to do it, but in smaller doses than perhaps previously considered?
1: I don't know of necessarily smaller doses, but I think in terms of interpreting the results of a workout, what I mean by that is where I've personally kind of found myself getting into trouble is in training for a race, you have a goal time set in mind. You deduct back from that, knowing that if I want to run this time, I need to be doing these type of paces for the workout And if I go into that workout and don't hit those paces, then I'm disappointed. Or if I go into the workout and overextend myself to hit those paces, then I've cooked myself and I went much deeper to the well than I needed to, where I'm trying to prove that I can run that time for that race, but trying to do it in the workout when I really need to worry about just doing it in the race.
0: Yeah, so you are focused more on an examination of the output. Yeah. The reflection on it afterward that we may need to recalibrate and dial back there. So I'll take it from the perspective of the input of what yep. we actually prescribe in our program. We're discussing largely 5K distances and up here because most of the athletes we saw in the, uh, the study referenced were in that group. There were 1500 meter and 3K runners as well, but it's largely traditional distance runners. So if training for those events, I'd likely limit more the number of first, the big VO2 max sessions. Mm -hmm. Second, the reps at mile pace. So not the short ones, not the strides, not maybe the 200s, but if we're not training for the mile or an adjacent vent to the mile. If we're trying to run a 10 K, I, I don't know that six, 800 meters at mile pace is a wise uh, training protocol.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Also the really long threshold sessions, like we sometimes see the pros doing six or eight miles continuous at half marathon pace. That just feels so substantial for most of us. Chunking that is is much wiser, but that total number is really big. And again, we should probably be looking at what they're doing more in the amount of time they're doing it for than the distance they're covering. But that feels like one that doesn't translate. Go ahead, Phil. I'm sorry.
1: Well, no, as a percentage of their total mileage that they're doing as well,
0: Yep. That's a, that's a good point. And Maybe even also like the very hardest hill sessions could be something to consider. But these are all things where we, we do them a little bit, but not as much as some of the conventional wisdom has suggested. And that's reinforced by what a lot of elite runners are doing. But this is especially true if you race a lot. If you race a lot, you are going to use these types of of hard workouts even less frequently. If you race infrequently, maybe every few weeks or months, you do some of this harder stuff as it can be a place for both physical and psychological breakthroughs, I do think. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as a key point there, success in those workouts is now more attainable because of the wisdom of training in between, because we're not going so hard all the time. We're doing the things in between that make those seemingly harder workouts more realistic. Mm -hmm. Ready for number three, Phil? it. I love this one. This is one that, but when we just look for you and I on our training, we need to focus on this year. And I believe this, Every single person should take a moment here at the start of the year to reflect on point three, which is elite training considers and targets the athlete's limitations. What are your limitations? This is something world, world world-class runners and their coaches excel at knowing their limitations. And using that knowledge to inform training, whereas recreational age groups, sometimes even sub-elite runners, often avoid their limitations because they might involve the forms of training that we don't enjoy quite as much. So what do we do? We double down on doing the you things that right, there yeah, right. it is. Yes. <laughs> we double down on doing the things we like. We focus on our strengths. And we want to lean into our strengths, but conquering the weaknesses might be the essential element to an elite breakthrough. As an example, Phil, you raised the point of durability Mm -hmm. last week in your reflections, both on the race at CIM and, and more broadly, your year of racing. As we look forward to 2023, durability might be the research topic that gets a huge bump in attention. Yep. We're, we're already starting to see it. And this term of durability that as you were referencing it, I would say refers to the ability to maintain performance mm-hmm. and maintain high percentages of variables like economy and lactate threshold when you are already fatigued?
1: Yep. And I, I think of it as the ability to sustain an output over an extended period of time. And not necessarily in the context of even like 5k or 10k training, but as we get longer and longer, your fitness may indicate that you can run a certain amount of time, but can you sustain that over the duration of the
0: event. Agreed. The durability is a a concept with the greatest impact for, most likely for marathoners and ultra marathoners. Yeah. However, improving it in practice could have benefits for people running shorter events as well. And, And we'll save that for another time and place. If that's your limiting factor, Phil, let's consider how to improve it i have three ideas okay anything that comes to mind immediately for you as you've been reflecting on your training
1: yeah as i'm looking at what i've done over the past year my mileage has been relatively high and i've had more weeks at higher levels of mileage than i usually have i think the biggest issue that i've had over the past year was inconsistency yes that whether that's self-imposed because of work or vacations or whatever, or whether that's because of recovering from too many races or illness or what have you. I just haven't had a consistent steady block of that higher mileage. But to your point, I think the other issue is not having the, the longer long runs or as many long runs as I probably need to successfully run a solid marathon.
0: Yeah. So if you like Phil are facing durability as a limiting factor. We can build on the point that, Phil, that you just ended with, which is my first on my list of three things here. Mm-hmm. Improving that durability and mitigating that limitation probably requires some level of specificity in training. And that specificity is not just in pace, but it's also in time or distance. Yep. You likely, as you just said, need more and more consistent long runs to marathon at the level that you want. So you hit the first point, and I do think it's probably the most obvious one. Number two, once we have that long run consistency and you're comfortable at those distances, now we address specific, specificity in a different way. It's pace specificity in a state of fatigue. As an example, a steady long run that naturally and gradually progresses toward marathon pace near the end. That's one way you could attack Mm -hmm. pace specificity while pre-fatigued. You could go about it another way though, and that would be my third option. Consider long runs, medium long runs, or long workout sessions with quality work Early while fresh, then an endurance or tempo focus after. Mm-hmm. So hypothetical workout here, something like a warm up plus 30 minutes segmented into six by five minutes, and we're going to roll through it continuous. And those five, mi- five minutes are then subdivided into three minutes at half marathon effort two minutes moderate kind of floating for two minutes. Yeah. And then repeat that five minute cycle six times for 30 minutes in a block while you're fresh. We've talked a lot here about how to really hone a skill. It's best done as we develop it while we're fresh. And then we sharpen it by working on it in this state of fatigue as we look for durability. Yep. After that 30 minutes, then you take a short jog and now maybe we do some time of steady running or slightly faster at even up to marathon pace. So you're getting pace specificity while pre-fatigued. Those concept mix uh, concepts yeah, make absolutely. some sense, Phil. Yeah. You
1: know, okay. I think those are probably the biggest areas to lean into from a training perspective to kind of make that next step. And I think we're right on track.
0: Remember, in mile 114 and 115, when we first addressed this study, one of the points the authors noted that that we both keyed in on is the marathoners prioritize the long run. The track runners prioritize the track sessions. That is instructive for us as the commoners in the running public, not to say your long run, if you're a marathoner, is the only thing that matters. Or even that more directly, while you're in a marathon block, it's the only thing that matters. But certainly the elites are are doing the things to protect around it, to make sure they can get the benefit from the long run, knowing that it's critical for success over 26 plus miles in a way that it might not be as critical. It still could be important, but might not be as critical for the track athlete
1: let's throw the question to you what what do you see as your biggest area to address in this category for for the coming year
0: yeah that's great it, one limitation for me has always been the high end the top end speed it's mm-hmm. it's one that i've worked for several years now as as a primary focus i i do believe that although my if if we're going to use that term durability again is more advanced than yours, Phil. It, it doesn't mean I've perfected it, and so uh, I'm, I have to work at different ends of the spectrum here. But that high-end speed limitation is why I've been prioritizing the strides and the hill sprints and the hill rep sessions for a number of years now. To to some degree of success, I'm fortunate that I enjoy those workouts. Also, I. I think you're fortunate, Phil, that you enjoy the long run.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: But we can all find more joy in working on our limitations as we develop mastery. You know, all the, all the research on passion in our lives turns on its head this suggestion that, you, oh, you go follow your passion and, and that's the life you should live. Yes, it's, it's wonderful to have things that you care about deeply that you pursue, but passion is reinforced by mastery. Often it's impossible to have great passion for a skill if you have no ability at said skill. (laughs) And and so I do think the more that you work on your limitation, the more you might find some fun in doing so, even though now you're avoiding it for many of us, that perspective may change once you start to work on it and start to see it improve.
1: Well, and I would expect you to get some pretty positive feedback addressing these weaknesses where you can actually see some improvement relatively quickly versus continuing to do the same continuing to address the same areas you always have just because you you enjoy them and you're good at them
0: yeah especially if you haven't done it at all yeah if if you've done a little bit of it maybe it takes a, a little longer to improve but if you haven't done it at all you might see those marked improvements and that immediate feedback loop could be very positive and reinforce, hey, let's keep doing this to get better at it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Each of these is going to keep building on the previous. Let's go to number four. We are always varying intensities and touching on nearly every skill, but we do it to different degrees depending on the point in the season. And to put that another way, We're always addressing limitations, but we're addressing them to different degrees depending on the point in the season. Elites execute this remarkably well. They don't simply stick to traditional conceptions of periodization. Let's use 5K training as an example. I use it because we often think of traditional blocks like building a big base of volume moving to a bunch of tempo or threshold work and then sharpening with a specific period where we do all the race pace work. That general model can make sense. I'm not opposing the generalities in the model, but it's just not that linear or straightforward. These sequential variables of easy volume, threshold, 5K specific work they might be the predominant sessions as you move through your phases in 5K training, but there's so many other ingredients involved. Uh, for example, in the base, that can be a great time for developing maximum speed in really small doses. Right? That yeah. Do the strides, do the hill sprints. That take it then and flip it. Let's go to the far end now to the specific competition period at the, uh, the other end of the spectrum i'm going to reference a 2021 paper it's entitled training characteristics of a world championship 5000 meter finalist and multiple continental record holder over the year leading to a world championship final can we condense the title of this academic work <laughs> phil you're you're a doctor can you do something about this
1: Oh, that's what makes them sound so smart. Oh. You can just read the title. You don't even have to read the paper. You know what it's about and <laughs> you move on to the
0: next <laughs> it's, it's just, uh, oh, the jar. That's how I
1: read papers. Look at the title. Eh, I know what this is about.
0: Yep. You scroll down to the conclusion. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. So, this paper, we know this to be written about Aussie star Stewie McSwain's training. Mm-hmm. Uh, McSwain is one of a handful of people, it's, it's fewer than 10, I know, to have ever run sub 330 for 1500 meters, sub 730 for 3000, and sub 13 minutes for a 5k. Yep, Elite of the elite. And when we look at his faster sessions in the competitive phase in this journal article, we see the most challenging session is a mixed pace workout with four miles done as 10K pace reps. It's four by a mile. And then they went to some shorter reps at 5K down to 3K pace. That's the most challenging thing he did. Then he still has his threshold run on Thursdays. So we're still sprinkling that in. He didn't go away from it just because it's the competitive phase. And he did long hills still on the weekend. In the earlier phases, he actually did his weekend hillier run was, uh, was threshold work over a hilly course. Now he's doing long hills, I believe 800 meters. I don't have the paper in front of me now, but I believe it was 800 meters uphill at 5k effort, not pace, effort. The intensities are varied. But they lean a bit more toward the specifics for that point in the season because we have some, if we touch on 3K, 5K, and 10K, and it's not just the maybe more threshold and hills that he did earlier, but they're still there. Plus, go back to my first and second points on our list. He didn't take a ton of unnecessarily hard risks, mm-hmm. and he played chess masterfully by using complementary sessions that kept the ultimate goal in mind the hill work. And the threshold work complemented what he was doing in his faster track track session and also didn't burn it down to make it impossible to get back to that track session the following week. Phil, for you and me, if we target a marathon this year, those hills might be more abundant early in the training. I'm doing Mm -hmm. a lot of it now. We've talked about this here many times before. I do a lot of it in the summer. But then they might go down to, say, once every few weeks later on, as we get into more long rep sessions around race pace. But I've mentioned the hills here, both in the uh, context of our running and the Stewie McSwain case study, because that power element that comes from hill work is so often a limiting factor for distance runners. Well, um
1: I know for my own benefit, that has played such an important role in terms of just making my stride much more efficient or economical, but we're still not getting that. And we've talked about it before, but not getting the impact and getting beaten up like you would over like a flat course or going downhill.
0: Yeah, the, the authors of this paper referred to hill running as the, the sport-specific power development That comes with those benefits of of economy and, uh, of course, it's threshold work. It's, It's all those things wrapped up neatly in this bow of working on a skill that for so many of us who maybe swing more toward the marathon, ultra marathon end of the distance spectrum are limited by. Yeah. Whereas the the mid-distance runner, the 800 runner, the 1500 runner, many of them may be more powerful. Naturally, it may have moved up from like the four and the eight. Again, it's just building on the previous points we've made on the list. Okay, last point, number five, prioritize and execute key sessions with mastery and intensity control. Those of us who are not elite are so often tempted to run a workout as fast as possible when we feel good. There are workouts with a time and place for that. (laughs) But typically the goal is not to run as hard as possible. It's to master the intention of the day. When we look at these case studies over and over again, and we hear from the authors of this research, The elites control intensity to hit the prescribed stimulus so well. They want to win the day, not take an unnecessary risk, and put their chess pieces in the best position on the board to set up victory. Faster is always better on race day. But if faster during training doesn't yield faster on race day, then it isn't better for training
1: and with that point i I think back to my own training with looking at the long run specifically like there's a group of guys in town that occasionally we'll get together with and when i jump in that group i know i'm probably getting in a little bit over my head but i still can hang so it's the toss-up of getting in with a group that's fun to run with but probably getting extended a little bit more than i should which is also going to require a bit more recovery the next couple of days and probably going to affect the next workout that I have planned. So realizing where I need to let that group go or where I need to go and do my own thing versus getting overextended.
0: Yeah, and to go back to our previous point, knowing also how often you should jump into that because there's a time, right, to push yourself but how frequently are we doing it and how are we doing that in the context of all the other stuff that we have in our program? Yeah. So to recap all these elite training looks like well-played chess. It includes fewer monster workouts as a trade-off for nailing more and more consistent quality over time, focuses on mitigating the athlete's limitations Varies intensities at all times, but to certain degrees, depending on the time of year and point in season, and prioritizes executing key sessions with mastery and intensity control. With those five pieces, Phil, we can all apply them, and it eliminates that variable that you discussed in the context of the Norwegian triathletes last week of the survivorship bias, because you can do these things right for you. You Mm -hmm. don't have to do them just because somebody who's really good does them. These are
1: solid principles, but they they scale to any level.
0: That's right. We can scale it to where we are now with an eye on where we want to be in the future. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Okay, Phil, before we go, do you wanna make any like big, bold 2023 prediction? Uh, what year is this on the uh, Chinese calendar? Do we know? I want to oh, see the tiger. <laughs> is it the year of the tiger? <sighs> well, we're a, just coming a a tiger? out. Of <laughs> I don't know. I got no clue, but I'm over here making noises that don't sound. like that anymore. tiger noise oh, can... again. That was
1: something no, else. No,
0: <laughs> God, I don't know what. It was like a, it was a cat with a furball. I don't know what it was called.
1: I, I halfway call, so I, I don't know if it was me or your. Uh, uh, or yeah,
0: like a it was disgusting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so whatever this year is going to be.
1: So predictions of the year. Oh. Yeah, you, you
0: want to go out on a limb and say something that I'm sure we will look back on in a year and everyone will criticize us?
1: No. My prediction of the year is that Kipchoge wins Boston.
0: Mm, that's bold.
1: That's about as safe as it gets.
0: <laughs> I was actually thinking of like going out on a limb for something, but now I'm going to play it safe.
1: A cherry.
0: Okay, I'm going to make a few. One, I'm going to say that cherry will be the best flavor in the Kringle of the Month Club. Ooh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Two, I'm going to run a marathon PR this year. Ooh. That's actually the boldest one, not because my fitness, but because I'm not even sure I'll run a marathon this year. <laughs> <laughs> but now that I put that out there, I guess I better go run a marathon PR this year. That's
1: right.
0: Three. I'm going to shift now to some athletes that I think have big performances that um, maybe their people were sleeping on just a little bit. Okay? Okay. And this is an interesting year because um, we're, we're building toward a, a world champs next year and then an Olympics the following year. Um, with the new olympic standards being so rigorous
1: they are fast holy cow
0: right they're lightning fast and i believe that's done intentionally to value uh scoring points Mm -hmm. at the world athletics events and winning like when we get to the olympic trials uh, you know getting the points from winning head to head say at the ten thousand, i think it's 27 flat is the men's Uh standard and it's like 30 40 for the women's it's so fast but it it does put the emphasis then on winning your event at your national championships and getting points at the big meets so in that context a few people who I think we could be sleeping on one is Ben True Ooh okay I don't think it's over yet and if for him I'm going to say a marathon, a marathon? yeah a marathon happens he he was in for New York City and got sick. Yep. But I see him maybe taking a next step.
1: I would love to see that because he, he's got the track
0: speed. No question. Then I started to think about who's the female marathoner who could perhaps join that small group at the top. We have great depth in um, American women's marathoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the top, of course, it's been... Kira D'Amato, Emily Sisson now is the national record holder. Sarah Hall, who's going to emerge and challenge them? Paige Stoner got the win at at CIM as her current US champion. Uh, I think we get building on success from last year. And I just love the way she competes. Lindsay Flanagan.
1: Ooh, interesting.
0: Okay. I think we'll put herself in the mix. And that front group at one of the big marathons this year, I have no idea what she's running, uh, yeah. if, she, if she has something planned. But I'm going to go back to former guest here, Lindsay Flanagan, friend of the show. And then my last one will be, I worry about this, not that my prediction will be bad, but just what this, uh, the implications of this mm-hmm. are for, for the sport. I suspect we may start to see the transfer portal in college track and cross country look like what it looks like in football and basketball. Ooh, yeah. We, we've we seen some of this, right? Uh, we can take a few athletes, like let's take the Tennessee program, for example, when you get Sean Carlson moves from Notre Dame and Randolph Ross coming over in the track program. then there's been a few people move there. And, and we've seen the grad transfers. Uh, we just saw a Division three national champion, Alex Phillip, now as perhaps the most accomplished Division Three runner in recent memory, moving on to North Carolina and to Chapel Hill, mm-hmm. will some of these great programs consolidate power via the transfer portal where we start to pick off from the top? Or conversely, do we see a movement down from some runners who overreached with the school they picked out of high school and, and try to get a more favorable competitive experience. I'm hypothesizing, but what my prediction here is, we're going to see more and more transfers of high-level collegiate runners.
1: That's an interesting question. And I think in distance running, it will be more detrimental relative to like what we're seeing in basketball and football and i I think about it you know as somebody that works at a mid-major school where you know we have kids that come in that maybe were unheralded out of high school but develop and really become talented but then transfer to a bigger power five school which hurts us but then on the flip side we have a lot of transfers that come into our programs from a bigger school coming to us because they weren't getting the playing time or weren't getting the exposure that they thought that they might get at a big time school and transfer down a level. I think distance running is a little bit different in that number one, you see so many kids first struggle when they get to college because they're adapting to a new lifestyle, a new level of training and a new level of stress and what have you. So there's a lot of stagnation that first year or two But there's so much importance to consistency, to belief in your program, and to belief in what you're doing that if you're jumping ship every year, every season or two, you're not going to develop to the degree that you possibly could have if you stayed put.
0: Yeah, it's especially true of distance running, isn't it? Where the philosophy is so long term in training, like the things that we just put in our list of five focal points we can take from the elites movement through programs uh, may have a deleterious effect in the long term on your development. It's hard to know. Uh, We're extrapolating here. But I, again, I think in 2023, we're going to see more movement uh, Mm -hmm. among track and field and cross-country athletes than we have in previous years. Phil, I am looking forward to a beautiful 2023 with you, my friend. I hope we can take some of these lessons from the elites and you, me, and the entire audience can become better distance runners in the coming year. We will see you next time on mile 139. Happy New Year. Happy New Year on the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Everybody have a great start to the year. We'll see you soon.